Welcome to episode 35 of Doc Fermento Discovers the World. Today we're talking with Douglas Rushkoff. I think this one's titled Coin of the Realm. About three plus years ago, maybe four now, I read a book called Life Inc. The way I remember it, it was a referral from Mark Frauenfelder from Boing Boing, where, well, that's where I get most of my book referrals from. But anyways, I had happened to read Life, Inc. at a time in my life when uh, there was drastic changes afoot for me personally, and um, it, it, it was perfect timing. Um, it wasn't fuel for me or um, anything like that, but it just helped explain the way the world works. And it's an amazing history lesson. You know, Douglas touches off the book with um, he got mugged and then proceeds to single-handedly dismantle 600 years of faulty economics. <laughs> Uh, so to speak. So basically, he he's, he reveals the, what may have been the real Renaissance, which existed before the Renaissance. And then all the way through to today's uh, society with the gurus of self and finance. You know, and of course, he covers roughly the equivalent of corporate control of our minds. I think the book is fascinating. So he wrote this book a few years ago. It's Life, Inc., How Corporatism Conquered the World and How to Take It Back. His newer book is Program or Be Programmed, Ten Commands for a Digital Age. I brought Douglas on to talk about Life, Inc. because the book's really important to me. But of course, we kind of rolled that into a little bit of talk about Program or Be Programmed and his new work with Code Academy. All right, I think that intro was long enough. You'll get the point of this conversation once we get in, and I hope you enjoy this as always. Thank you for listening. And since I'm interviewing an author, it only makes sense to mention the promotion at audible.com. Douglas Rushkoff's book, Life Inc., is available at Audible. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash Doc Fermento. I mean, a half hour of me is like three hours of most people. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing with your book. So what... What brought this on me contacting you was the book Life, Inc. I happened to read this like hot off the presses when it first came out, and it was at the exact same time my personal financial life completely fell apart and basically ruined myself and my family's opportunity to survive economically. So it was kind of a strange coincidence as I was reading this book. And um, the thing is, the, the like you just said about being dense, it's... It is dense. It's a whirlwind. It's a it's a history of of economics for the past six hundred years. Yeah, it does end up being that, does it? 
Doesn't but it, it but it moves. <laughs> it moves and it's readable and it's I mean it's it's very entertaining. Well, I mean I ended up having to go back there because I realized that I mean the main thing I I'm interested in and I mean and money is part of it because money's a, a a big one out there but I'm just really into helping people see the difference between kind of the maps and the territory to see the difference between the stuff that we accept as kind of the given circumstances of the universe and and show them really that how how so many of those things are actually the inventions of people at particular moments in history you know and it turns out you know that the money we use was invented at a very particular moment in history to serve you know a very particular set of institutions or or the people behind them so i kind of just had to go back until i found you know where they come up with this stuff and then roll forward but the weird thing is once you start and maybe it's because i'm old now or something but once you start looking at things that happened you know five six hundred years ago it stops looking like so very long ago. It starts looking like kind of the beginning of of modern times. And you you start to realize that that the way we've been living this kind of corporate lifestyle um, is really pretty new when you look at sort of those huge expanses of history when people lived in other ways. You know, six hundred years is not that long when you think about it. It's you know, it's like mm-hmm. ten sixty year olds. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's that's a good way to put it. Yeah, at first when I, you know, I opened the book and I see we're going to be talking I'm going to be reading about the Renaissance, my eyes kind of roll. I'm like, where is this going to go? I don't yeah. want to get a history lesson on the Renaissance, pre-Renaissance. And then before you know it, you're like you just said, you realize, oh, things weren't so different. The new things then are perfect corollaries to think the new things now. When you talk about how um Money served its creators. I yeah. mean, is that more accurate now than ever before? Um, in some ways, yeah, but in, in some ways, no. Um, I mean, money served its creators really well in eleven, twelve, and thirteen hundred. You know, back when it was invented, because its creators were getting relatively poor compared to you know the middle class and compared to people who worked. You know, there used to be this this class of lords and, and kind of proto-kings who really could make, make money. Well, they didn't make money, but, but could stay wealthy simply by, by owning the land and by having a bunch of peasants work on their land. You know, as that changed, as people started to create value and make shoes and trade with one another, you know, when they developed all the kind of peer-to-peer mechanisms that we think are oh so new on, you know, Facebook or where, wherever today – you know, when they were actually working that way, wealthy people were getting poor. So the initial invention of central currency really landed like a ton of bricks on the growing economy. It just stopped it, kind of dead in its tracks and forced everybody to work for companies again and to get jobs and to stop trading with one another and to stop using any kind of money that wasn't borrowed from the king. You know, it really mm-hmm. – it, it worked really well. Um, if anything, now, the reason we're starting to see the economy stop working so well is that it, it sort of reached its end point. If, it, if you don't have room to expand, if you can't grow your economies by taking over some new continent and enslave some new people or screw them up in one way or another, 
um, you, you kind of lose the ability to make money with money. You know, I go to these meetings, you know, here in New York, there's all these people who want to be angel investors. And the investors are actually competing against one another to try to find things to invest in. You know, when you see these kids with their little dot-com companies, you know, they get to pick which money they're going to take. You know, that's money's kind of lost it, it, it they've printed just too much of it, you know, and so all of their asset classes, stocks and bonds and investments, all those things have inflated, you know, and and you've got these companies, these corporations that are really rich, they're flush with cash, but they don't yet, they, they can no longer really make money with that money. They can't think of what to do with it. Yeah, they don't even know, uh, right, so they have all this money, they don't know what to do with it, they have to find these new fresh ideas, from the kids. Right. Or, and, and they don't even really, sadly enough, they don't even want genuine fresh ideas that they can make real money with. They were looking for, they're looking for ideas that sound good that then they can sell for more money to someone else. So they're really, it's almost like, you know, uh, when I was a kid, screenplays were the thing. People would just come up with a screenplay idea and try to sell it, you know, to some big movie studio. It's more like that. It's like, what idea sounds good enough for me to invest some money in and then turn it around to someone else? They don't really care if the thing makes money or not in the end. I mean, Facebook was kind of the, the ultimate of that. You know, here is this sort of mythological way of making money. You know, Facebook doesn't really make money. I mean, they don't know how they're going to make money, which is why part of, part of why the, the IPO – Although a successful IPO is ultimately for a company that's not going to reach that IPO value again anytime soon because they don't actually create value. They've just created a great story for people to invest in. Yeah, like you're saying about – so from the other end, so you have the, the kids, say, from a previous generation were writing screenplays. Well, having one hit is like – or getting picked up is the equivalent of winning the lottery. Yeah. It doesn't serve a very large segment of the population. No, and you the the thing is you can get the hit and still not make anything for anybody. You know, there's this there's this one startup in New York. I forgot what it was called, like Draw Me or something or Draw Together. It was a an iPhone app and you draw little pictures on it and then upload them. You know, so it was like, you know, Mac Draw or Mac Paint or something, mm-hmm. but on an iPhone and people shared. And um, they managed to create enough buzz. I mean, they got a zillion subscribers in those, you know, first weeks or a couple of months when it was a hit and managed to sell it at the right moment. And then it gets sold and kind of that's it, you know, and then it people stop using it. And that, you know, that upward arc just turns around and, and goes down again. You know, as as quickly as it went up, it it crashes back to the ground, and yeah. everybody's left scratching their heads. Well, yeah, we see this repeatedly with hot memes, viral yeah. videos. Some company will pick up the newest, you know, viral video star, and he's gone within hours. It seems. Yeah, and nobody really trusts themselves anymore, which is sort of the shame of it. You know, so this is even in in publishing and everywhere else. You know, it's like, oh, I know he's a good writer, but. You know, does he have enough people on his blog or how many Twitter followers does he have? And, you know, it, 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 they're looking for metrics that, that aren't real, you know, and, and just kind of disconnect people further and further from their own 
sensibilities about mm-hmm. what matters and what doesn't and, and their own <clears throat> expertise and competence, you know, is, is yep. surrendered immediately to what they think, you know, the market wants. Yeah, and it seems the, the current crop of, well, economic educators via these channels of either PBS or the Learning Annex or these, these are tools to your own demise. <laughs> yeah. Just the worst advice, the Susie Ormond's on, she's on PBS. You know, you think, oh, PBS, harmless, right? That it wouldn't and, be trustworthy or something. Right. Yeah. And in, instead, it's not even, it, it's just, it's a huge negative. You know, she, right. she'll tell you to get successful, you need to use your visa card properly. Well, that's not how she made her money. She, you know. She made her money on municipal bonds, actually. Well, that's where she invests it. Um, she doesn't tell anybody that. But um, no, I mean, and she, she has her own credit card she's given to people, you know. So, you know, she's, she is so much a part of the problem and has changed her tune over the years, depending on what sort of the kind of the what's the popular thing to say or what's mm-hmm. the thing to say that, she, that she'll make the most money on. I'm, I'm surprised she hasn't been called out more. There was even a, you know, the New York Times Magazine a couple of years ago did really a fluff piece on her. And I, I was disappointed that they would just accept her at face value and not look at the, at the integrity or, or lack of integrity of the actual advice she's giving to people. Yeah, she's just one example of, of so many. It's an entire industry. Well, was, it is. I was fascinated to read about the learning annex and what, yeah. what, what's really going on behind that. And, and, and I mean, the learning annex is, is again, is a, it's almost the tip of the iceberg of this I mean, it's very hard to say I'm against consumer empowerment or I'm against consumer education. But the whole movement out there towards, you know, having financially literate citizens is really just to mask the fact that 401ks and retirement plans and all these things don't actually work. You know, they were never meant to work. What they were meant to do was to relieve corporations and government alike of the responsibility to provide pensions for employees. So they said, well, look, instead of having to pay for a pension for your employee, you're going to let your employee invest stuff himself. And isn't that great for personal empowerment and all that? But all it really did was make make people the, the prey of this giant financial services industry. You know, and, and you and I are raised to think, oh, you know, do the responsible thing for yourself and your family and open up one of these 401k plans and put money in it. And they don't make money. You know, you actually are better off putting money in a shoebox under your bed than you are investing in these scams because that's what they really are. They're not there to help you raise money. These are giant financial services companies that are there to extract money from you one way or another. And, you know, the minute that you understand uh, uh, stocks well enough to buy an index fund, then they're going to be telling you you have to buy options. That's the new thing is they're, they're sending out emails to people like me telling us to open options accounts as if we would really be able to do that in, in a serious and money-producing way. Mm-hmm. You know, unless we're actually going to spend half or three-quarters of our time as traders, you know, and, and is that a good way to push a country? Well, instead of ha- – actually producing anything or being a good doctor or 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 nurse or teacher or anything now i'm going to spend my time managing my capital you know, it doesn't make sense and we don't have enough capital to actually manage so the whole thing really dating back 30 40 years has been um 
it's been a ruse. And, and I don't know that that's really fully exposed yet. As long as there's people who really think that, the, that you know, oh, I could be better than the others. I can open an E-Trade account and beat mm-hmm. out the rest. Right. As long as you think that, you know, you're well, the You so- can buy the secret software online you know, right. that's going to reveal all the secrets of day trading. Right, and there's really only one secret, which is that you're the sucker, you know? I guess that is um, the secret of the secret. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the program that is running rampant out there in the wilds. You clip it. How does, you know, you, you clip the things you see, you post them around your world, and then they'll become a reality. Yeah, it's, it's kind the of ultimate the ultimate self-serving. Yeah, sort of Calvinist wet dream, mm-hmm. of, you know, Get this idea that that I mean that the basic premise of of the secret is that you kind of think it and then you get to be it. So you you know you look at magazines at the things you want to have and then you cut the picture out you know of the Rolls Royce or the big house or the sexy wife or whatever you want. And you supposed to tape it to a little board and put it up on the wall and keep looking at it, and then those things will start to manifest. Um, in your life. And it doesn't actually work like that, you know, or you think of yourself as a great writer and then you get to be one. You know, what they leave out is the actual acquisition of competence, the the work that's I was involved. Say, the work, the <laughs> the hours of work and practice and diligence. You know, right. the Norman Vincent Peale power of positive thinking thing is, is to is to keep you motivated to do your work. It is not the reward, you know? Right. The, the positive thinking is not supposed to magically create things. It's supposed to empower you to keep a, a, a focus and, and, and enjoy the, you know, your work, your labors. Well, at least in my perspective. Yeah, totally. Totally. I mean, and that's, I mean, that's always how I've looked at religion and even magic, you know, even the sort of Aleister Crowley and magical stuff helps motivate, you know, it helps motivate other stuff. Um, you know, it's really hard to uh, uh, just expect it to make, to make the thing happen for you. But, you know, that it, it really, it's much more consonant, though, with buying your way to success. Because, you know, if there's some DVD set that you can buy or some seminar you can take that's going to utterly transform your experience of life, you know, so that you get stuff that you didn't get before, um, people are going to do it. You know, people would rather um, would rather do that than work. And that's, that's a shame because, you know, work gets a bad name. It's as if work is somehow unfun or, uh, you know, and it's not. Uh, it, it is fun, real work and effort, especially if you're passionate about it, if you, if you can get into it rather than keep trying to avoid it, you know, for this, for this quick buck. Yeah, especially if you've managed to find or create work that you love. But for the most part, you're just, uh, you know, most workers are are doing nearly nothing for themselves or for their betterment. Right. I mean, and there you end up with sort of the problem that America is in now is most people are doing jobs that they know they're not really creating any value. You know, most people are in these weird sort of cubicle jobs doing something that's really a, some strange process for a company. And, you know, and they look at a, a, a kind of a genuine post-apocalyptic situation where people might have to actually do something in order to earn a place in the community. 
and they're afraid because they realize they don't really create any value. You know, so if, you know, the Lansing, Michigan scenario were to occur and there were no jobs and people had to actually figure out ways to trade with one another, a lot of us are thinking, well, what do I actually do? You know, what do I do for other people? Mm-hmm. You know, if you, if you were a chiropractor or a dentist or, you know, a math teacher or something, you'd know at least, oh, I do this thing. But um, if you don't, it gets kind of scary. Yeah, and a lot of people who, ha- who have done the, the due diligence, the hard work, the business owners, um, some type of minor catastrophe has destroyed them. They end up going to seminars to learn how to make money. And it was so funny the way you tell the story in the book. These are people who lost their homes due to foreclosure, and they were learning how to buy homes that had been foreclosed upon. Exactly. They're basically learning how to prey upon others like them. The people in the same room with them. (laughs) Yeah, it was kind of sad. You know, because really, I mean, anybody who gets the message of those seminars, who gets the real message of them, when they go, understands that, oh, I see, what I'm supposed to do is basically do what you're doing, is sell false dreams to other people, you know, or, you know, somehow take them, you know, take... uh, take advantage of their, of their uh, credit crisis. You know, so if a, if a person has had an illness and then goes underwater on their loan, you know, you get their, you know, sweep in and, and get, their, get their house for, you know, less than it's worth or, yeah. uh, you know, get them to, to sign something that's going to screw them even worse. You know, so it's a shame. But, you know, when you look at it, though, when, when, when these kinds of things, like the one I wrote about in the book was called, you know, the Wealth Expo, when you've got Donald Trump there, when you've got Alan Greenspan, you know, speaking at these things, it confers a legitimacy onto them, which, um, you know, is really frightening. You know, if Alan Greenspan is there kind of promoting this kind of activity, you know, what does that actually mean about the marketplace? It means that it really is that, you know, that, that there's no, there's really no two ways around it at that point. Yeah, Discovering the world of Alan Greenspan and his motivation, his inspirations is is quite a scary thing. It is, you know, and it's a it's a shame in a way. But I mean, on the one hand, he meant well. You know, he read his his Ayn Rand and believed in this kind of survival of the fittest makes our world strong model of capitalism. But you know, in the end, he realized it wasn't true. He even testified before Congress after his tenure was over when he said, well, my, it seems my worldview was fundamentally wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like mm-hmm. no one's, no one's, no one's <laughs> you know, learning from that. I was going to say uh, they didn't make any changes, though, no, did they? No. They right. don't make any changes. And, you know, when we get in a president like Obama and we think, okay, you know, now we're going to have a slightly more uh, sensible approach towards our economic maladies and he ends up hiring, you know, the, he ends up hiring people to save Goldman Sachs. And that's, um, I mean, I understand he had much more faith in the system or he, he came to believe that maintaining big businesses faith in the economic system was more important than creating an economic system that works. Um, but look where it's left us. I mean, it's left us in, in, a a really difficult, um, a really difficult economic place, mm-hmm. you know, and I feel like um, the fact that the other shoe hasn't dropped yet. Um, 
is is odd to me. Do you think you know? that there's something bigger looming? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on your perspective, um, none of the real problems of the, the investment banking system have actually been addressed. You know, you talk to any really wealthy person. I mean, and luckily as a as an author of some reputation, I you know a few billionaires out there. I mean, and these folks are putting all their money in cash and cash equivalents. You know, none of them believe that the the market is going to work. That this is that this is functioning. You know, they all look at the fact that the euro is broken. You know, the euro is is genuinely broken. Um, that that corporations in America don't really have a way of uh of making money with their money you know the the yeah these it's these the fiat currency right and especially yeah. as it globalizes it becomes weaker and weaker and all its flaws just become cracks like crevices in the earth they really do i mean and and then on top of that you know corporate earnings over corporate net worth is is going down, 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 which basically means corporations are really good at holding on to money, but they're really bad at investing it. They can't figure out ways to invest it to make money with their money. Uh, is, so this, is this kind of an example of like why Apple has however many billions of dollars in cash, but they just hold it? Yeah, they don't know what to do with it. So, you know, now there's people are starting. They're starting to pay dividends to shareholders. I mean, and dividends to shareholders in some ways is a good thing because it means you're making money with your stock. But it also means that the company really doesn't have anything better to do with it. Mm-hmm. You know, they can't. They, I mean, in in the best of worlds, it would lean to it would move towards a more sustainable economy where we would realize that companies shouldn't have to grow in order to be useful. That it should be okay for us to reach a kind of an equilibrium where people can live off what they do. You yeah. know, it's like we we look at numbers. Like I listen to the radio and they talk about housing starts. You know, which means new houses that they're building. I mean, meaning more forest or farmland being cleared. And while they're bulldozing existing, yeah, wonderful homes, existing homes too, as if housing starts is a sign of health. And mm-hmm. if you really look at it from a more macro perspective, it's like well. No, you know, couldn't we have a healthy society without building more homes? Yeah, it'd be just like <laughs> it'd be like praising the uh, growth, in, uh, you know, the um, increase in births while people are dying massively prematurely. Right. But you know, we actually are finding out now we need more births because we need right. young people to pay for the old people right. because we don't have a civil society where we take in our elderly or take care of them the way people used to now we depend on the state to do it or yeah. taxes or social security if families don't have the resources nor time to keep people at home that where they should be cared for right well because both parents are out working now mm-hmm. because you have to i mean god i mean i don't know how many jobs you have but i've got a ton of them i mean and and it is interesting in certain kinds of i mean they say that we're in a low inflation situation now but as I experience it, I mean, the things that I need have gone up, you know, to have a house went way up from from 20 years ago till now and to pay for school for your kid went way up. So it's like if I've got to find $50,000 a year to send my kid to college, whereas 20 years ago it was $5,000 a year, um, 
how is that zero inflation? I mean, it's like iceberg lettuce maybe hasn't gone up. But, you know, anything that you actually, you know, uh, all these other things certainly, certainly have. Television's gone up. You know, in a sense, no, you don't need cable, but you kind of do need cable. You know, and I look at these bills and um, they're, they're massive. Meanwhile, I look at the word rate as a writer, you know. Uh, uh, as a 20-something writer in the, the late 80s and early 90s, I could earn $3, $2 a word, you know, writing for Esquire, Penthouse, GQ. Now, those kinds of word rates are unheard of, you know. Those are like Hunter S. Thompson word rates, you know, mm-hmm. if that. So, you know, things, things have changed. Yeah, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I see this everywhere in um, just uh, in a living wage for people. You know, and on and on. You know, my mm-hmm. my entry level wage when I was sixteen, and and uh, is, and and what a a, a skilled craftsperson today isn't that far removed. It hasn't climbed enough. You know, I entered the workforce at four dollars an hour cash, mm-hmm. and today I know of um, professional tailors. They make twelve dollars an hour. This is twenty five years later. You're talking about a master level tailor. They make twelve dollars an hour. It's 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 insane, right? Well, it's because the way things moved. I mean, you know, it was kind of the the Jack Welch General Electric view of of business. I mean, really, what happened is people who actually create value are the suckers, and people who extract value have been getting more and more of it. I mean, where where this this idea kind of uh, uh, became popularized was when General Electric started to lend money to people so that they could buy General Electric appliances or even capital products like jet engines or the stuff that they made. So General Electric would, you know, you'd have a certain number of hundreds of millions of dollars invested in productive assets, making stuff, making jet engines, making washing machines, making refrigerators. And then this other amount of money that they would spend lending it to people so they could buy those jet engines and washing machines and refrigerators and stuff. And then Jack Welch and other people looked at General Electric's balance sheet and said, look, you know, we make a hell of a lot more money with our lending division than we do with the division that actually makes stuff. So they started selling off their the subsidiaries that made things and holding on to the subsidiaries that lent money. Mm-hmm. So they became more and more like a bank because they didn't want to be dealing with employees and health insurance and materials and manufacturing and sending things to places. So as the economy shifted away from people who produce and make stuff towards people who just really spread money around and, and lend – those of us who were involved in actually crafting things ended up in the loser parts mm-hmm. of companies, the parts that don't pay a lot, the parts that don't have you know, bonuses and Wall Street kickbacks and all that stuff, or people who are working for things that might as well be shipped overseas, you know, whether it's you know, the call centers in India or the, the manufacturing plants of China. And... Uh, it, it led to an economy, and that's where really you see the split. I mean, even in my town, you know, those of us who live in the kind of the flat part of town are, you know, writers and tailors and artists 
and people who actually work and make stuff and do things. And the people who live up the hill are bankers and mortgage brokers and do all of these abstract money things. And um, that's a tricky place for an economy to go because then actually doing something, actually creating value is the bad place to be when it really should be the good place to be. But when the shit hits the fan, when the bad stuff finally happens and this sort of top-heavy, middle-management-driven economy fails, only people who can actually fix your refrigerator or who can actually bring fresh water to your tap or who can actually make the electric plant work, those are the people who are going to be valued again because we're going to need someone local who can actually make things work. Where do we get our food if Pathmark's long you know, corporate consumer supply chain of loans and, and, and FICO scores and LIBOR <laughs> lending, when that stops working, we need someone to actually hand us some charge so we can yeah. eat. I know that there are a few people out there who, you know, who are into these crafts, whether it's food production, these things, but for the majority of people, their minds have been so programmed by the corporations you know the corporate control of the mind i don't even know if they if we would be able to function (laughs) it would be weird i mean i was you know when i think about and like anybody else certainly as any science fiction buff you know i have i do science fiction you know apocalypse scenario planning and um when i think about i think well shoot you know i was kind of halfway to emt certification back when i was a teenager you know, uh, emergency medical technician. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, that's like if I finish that, then at least, you know, when things come <laughs> down, I'll have like a kind of a, a workable skill. People could use an EMT as kind of a valuable thing. Yeah. It's actually a thing. You know, it's kind of more than, you know, do we need a media theorist? <laughs> At that point, in, right. In that, in that well, Douglas, let's be honest. World. Let's be honest. Do we need one now? <laughs> of course we do. Media theorists are the most important people on the planet. Um, yeah, I mean, media, <laughs> uh, media theorists, I think we are important in a world where people, people's uh, experiences of the world and one another are increasingly mediated. You know, I think it's, it's good to have people who are, who are here to say, uh, wake up, people! Um, you know your your the, the tools you are using are, are are many of them are more disconnecting than they are connecting. Yeah. But um, you know, and and yeah, I, I, when you have these giant companies, these kind of Googles and Facebooks out there, all claiming that they're not doing evil, it's kind of good to have a few people looking at. Well, what would evil be in such a situation? You know, rather than just a, a, a slogan. Um, but yeah, yeah I, it's I heard not the an best example. Skill. I heard a best explanation for that. This Google not doing any evil. It was um, Andy Inako, and he had said, "Yeah, it'd be kind of like your college dorm roommate cleaning out your fridge and replacing the whole thing with vegan food, and saying to you, you know, I, this this will be better for you. You're going to be happier now.' It wasn't evil what the person did, but it it wasn't good for you, right?" No. They did not do an evil act, but it is not good for you. Same thing with Google. This not doing evil is the biggest, oh, what that's incredible that they can get away with. It's idiocy. Yeah, I mean, I understand where it came from. 
I mean, I think it came from a good place. But, but then they, would, they really need a don't-do-evil officer. Yeah, actually, I pitched that to them when I, I gave a, one of those authors at Google Talks. Oh, they need an internal affairs? Yeah, well, it's like, I love this don't-do-evil thing, but why don't you bring me in as kind of the don't-do-evil guy? And yeah. I'll, I'll look uh-huh. at the actual effects of the different choices that Google makes. What are the effects out there on people and industry and countries? And kind of do a, you know, like the New York Times has this guy that shows up on the op-ed page sometime. I forgot what he's called, the sort of... Uh, uh, ethics guy, you know, okay. and he's sort of looking at the, he's kind of this editor at large who looks at the impact of various editorial decisions and whether they've been honest or not. And, and yeah, why not? You know, why not have that? <laughs> sure, sure. It'd be good for us. Yeah, and I want like $200,000 a year to do it. And right. Stock. Of course. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Stock options, maybe. Yeah, you know, so we're talking about... I missed about- out on the whole thing, unfortunately. Really? You know, I, was, yeah. I was in on the internet from before there was an I was internet. I say, weren't you there from the beginning? I was there from the beginning. I was doing basic extensive, and I knew it was going to happen, and I told everyone, and uh-huh. I was teased. My first book was canceled because they thought the internet would be over by 93 when it was going to come out. You know, it was crazy, and I didn't do, and I've seen so many different waves of it, and I always figure it's going to be over before I actually... Well, I, yeah, I figure the stories they tell about the uh, massive, you know, abundance of wealth that was created is in very few hands. There were actually very few people who were standing by and were lifted by the wave, you know? Yeah. Most people were just washed and drowned. And it does take... For the most part, it takes a temperament that, I mean, you or I might not have. I mean, a guy like Jeff Bezos, say, is really smart and all, but he's also kind of ruthless, you know? Of, of course, absolutely. You know, or even yeah. a Steve Jobs, I mean, well, in addition to being brilliant, he was also, I mean, he was willing to, to play the part of a cult leader on a mm-hmm. level that I could never um, right. I could never muster. Right. And I think in order to accumulate kind of, the, you know, the, the kind of money that these people can accumulate, um, there's, there's got to be a, a different, yeah, the, you know, the, the dip switches are configured differently totally in their, different. In their the, the, the individuals actually wired just like the corporation, as if the person does not sleep, does not feel, does not care, yeah. doesn't age, it, it matures and, and grows, you know, you have to have that same attitude yeah. to become a fierce corporate giant, right? And a single, single mindedness. I mean, the problem is most of us in the sort of intellectual pursuits, we're very self-critical and self-questioning, you know, for as much time as I spend asserting what I believe, I spend alone in the corner doubting what I believe and changing what I believe. And, and and everything is provisional. I don't really believe anything. I, if anything, I'm more interested in what makes people believe something <laughs> rather than whether it's true or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I think it's really hard to, um, to succeed on, on that sort of dot-com-ish level unless you can put the blinders on and really kind of eyes for the prize. It's the same as a, a, a president. You know, how could you ever get someone in the position of really a senator or above Who's going to be self-critical? Who's going to really be wondering? You know, there's really no room for it. Yeah, You've got as, to be superhuman. It's as if the this whole um, 
uh, well, what do you call it? The John Nash uh, games models that he uh-huh. built. His his paranoid schizophrenic models of humanity were actually all based on power brokers. It's as if he used those as the general population at large. As if we're all as you know megalomaniac you know megalomaniacs as a as a senator or a corporate CEO. But humans don't behave that way. Right, unless they're really at a poker game. I mean, and part of the fun of being at a poker game is you get to experience, you know, a kind of a corporatist mentality. I'm going to lie, mm-hmm. basically, by bluffing. I'm not going to cheat, but I'm going to bluff. I'm going to, I've got the same odds as everyone else here, but I'm going to beat them by beating them. You know, and that's, I can. And the people can, who fake it get found out and washed out real quick. It really yeah, takes well, a professionally devious person or a person who's wired a certain way to be successful at poker. You can't right. fake it. It doesn't mean you're evil, though. No, no, no. It's in the, no, it's in the context yeah. of the game. Right. right. I mean, it's hard to do that for real. It's hard to do that outside the game. You know, but, but um, that's sort of what it takes. And that's sort of the, the way game theory looks at, at human behavior is in that um, as if we're that good – not just that good, but that committed to maximizing self-interest mm-hmm. at all times, as if we never really act out of empathy or um, or cooperation with other people, as if you know, and cooperation in a poker game would be, would be considered cheating. So you know, as long as you're willing to accept the rules of the game, then uh, it all logically follows. But if you don't believe in the game, like if you don't believe that capitalism is the rules of the game, if you don't believe that it is a natural system, that it is the most natural, loving, wonderful way for humans to interact, then it's hard to commit to it whole hog with your life. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, uh, you know, that shouldn't be a problem for people. It should be uh, an attribute, but it's, it's, certainly not, um, it's certainly not rewarded in our, in our society, and it's increasingly hard to keep yourself alive and fed in our society if you don't don that um that way of uh, uh of looking at things yeah. and that way of behaving so to get beyond this so going back this 600 years we've just been paving over the same roads with with the same materials sometimes inferior material over a superior road um over and over and over again and i mean this in reality they uh-huh. find ancient roads now currently that they, they don't even know the civilization that built it. Some, and they're still there. Some of them are superior to the roads we build now. So we're paving over and over our economy, you know, for 600 years, all the way up through this game theory, corporatism. Now, how do we build a new road without thinking we're going to get flying cars, right? How, what, is the new road, what is the new road surface going to be going forward? Um, it's tricky. Um, I don't know that it's a new road as much as um, becoming less dependent on the roads themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it. I so, mean, well, like, say for instance, avoiding the roads. Maybe an allergy. You know, might be. You might think of a uh, internet working from home, using the internet, digital technologies. Is this? Is this actually a possibility? In a way, it has to be. I mean, as I see it, um, and as I I understand it, um, there's more than enough stuff, right? That that currently we don't make stuff because people need stuff. We make stuff because people need jobs. 
or because corporations have to expand because we have to make more money in less time. Right? So if, if we're in a situation where we have enough stuff but we just can't figure out how to distribute it evenly, um, we can't figure out how to justify giving it to people lest they get lazy – um, you know, so that we're in this situation where we burn crops now to keep prices high or we destroy homes to prevent, um, you know, foreclosure sales from, from undermining the rest of the market, um, then we're, we're no longer in a situation where we have to figure out how do we become more productive. Instead, we're looking then at how do we, how do we deleverage our economy and how do we move towards a world where not everybody has to work all the time. So unwinding should be easier than winding up. If we, you know, if, if we can handle, you know, what it means, if we stop worrying so much about, oh my God, this guy's now, he's going to be freeloading or that one's going to be freeloading. So um, I think it starts really super small and it starts by people, um, beginning to engage in more efficient, um, often more local um, kinds of exchange, you know, whether it's just joining a community-supported agriculture group, you know, where you, you, you know, a CSA, um, and then maybe even working a little bit at the CSA instead of doing everything for money, um, figuring out whether you can create a time, you know, a time bank or a let system in your community for people to use currency instead of, uh, 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 or alternative currency instead of borrowing from the bank. Yeah. The great term I learned from the book was coin of the realm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and so instead of having to borrow money from the central treasury in order to have transactions, look at how else you might be able to do transactions. And there's lots of ways. I mean, you're still going to need coin of the realm to get your iPhone, right? Cause that's being shipped Thousands of miles and using all different and, international economies. And even more importantly, to pay your taxes. That's where the rubber hits the road. You're, yeah. You're still going to have to pay taxes. So, Right. I mean, and you're going to have to pay taxes in, in coin of the realm, right? Because that's yeah, the, has the, to be, yeah, paying that's Caesar be, what's due Caesar. Right. So, but, yeah, but not everything. So the more activity that starts to happen outside of the sort of central banking universe, uh, the more kind of connected with the value we create we become. I mean, it becomes less possible to become filthy rich under such a scheme, but it also becomes less necessary to so become filthy make, rich. Yeah, but, yeah, also, does it, is it less motivating then, you know, to some? It, you know, this is what they're going to hear. Well, then who's going to want to be, who's going to want to succeed if there's no great reward? You know, they say, why does a CEO make $14 billion a year? We have to pay them that to attract the best minds. It's like, well, no, because even a that's modest game, salary, yeah. you, you can attract the great minds. Well, that's the, that's the game that they're playing. Yeah. I mean, and I know them. I mean, I, don't, I know some of these people. I know a guy who has $50 million, right, which to me is astronomical. And his wife gives him crap because they don't have as many horses in their stable as the other people in their social circles who have hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh-huh. Or a billion dollars, you know, when their house is this big rather than that big. Or their house is in Sagaponic instead of Amagansett. I mean, there's like all these uh, uh, striations of, of, and I, I might have had it reversed there, I don't know, um, of, of where <laughs> you live on right, the, right. it's all from Gatsby, you know, the North Falk and the East Egg and West mm-hmm. Egg. And mm-hmm. um, it just starts to matter to these people on a weird level. I mean, what 
what a Greenspan or, or a, a capitalist would say is were they not competing on that level, you wouldn't get the necessary creative destruction of corporations and all in order to promote the right economic growth. But I would argue that we don't get the proper creative destruction as it is because those guys are clustered together keeping their failed corporations alive one way or another through creating public debt right um the- and no real creative destruction would allow my local pharmacy to compete mm-hmm. against walmart yeah, because i'd not, be able this yeah. does not uh, mimic or mirror natural selection whatsoever on any level it really doesn't right and and it it mirrors uh the the it mirrors natural selection if, like, a certain breed of mosquito could say, okay, we're changing the rules here so that even though you little ones are stronger than us, you know, we're going to get the insecticide guys to create, you know, uh, bug spray that kills just you and not us. Ha ha. You know, they're, they're, it's, I mean, it's, all, it's still natural selection if they're winning, right? They're winning, so it must, there must be some form of natural selection to play. But it's natural selection that's that's yeah. They just been, have well, yeah. With better tools and better technology, yeah. You, you they've you implemented get, a rule set yeah, yeah. that defeats what we think of as natural selection and lets them win no matter what. So yeah. So speaking of technology, I was thinking as I was reading the book about you know you were talking about map makers, cartographers, mm-hmm. and what they were drawing the kingdom who had paid for their travels. Then right. owned, right? So I was thinking about um, your next venture and your next book was Program or Be Programmed. It kind of, it's, they, it speaks well to that. Whereas if you're in the country that's getting programmed or drawn, someone else is going to own you soon, <laughs> you know? Like, like if you're the indigenous population and some superior money source is going to come and basically map you out map out the future people are programming and mapping the future for us right now and very few of us are a part of that process right i mean that's why you know i'm i'm speak, speaking to you from this place called code academy which is uh it's actually my first job you know and it's it's to be a kind of how old are you? <laughs> you lazy. Yeah, there you go. You lazy shit. <laughs> I've been working. I just never had a job. <laughs> All right. Hopefully, I'll be able to have health insurance soon, which should be fun. Mm. Um, but the the idea here is, I mean, it's a it's a way to learn code for free. It's this website, codecademy.com, and you go there, and it's a window that teaches you to code. And I mean, I've been out banging for the last two or three years, telling people learning code is is relatively easy to do i mean easier than than it's an easier path towards true participation in the maps that are getting written um than most other things you know it it's i mean code academy is fun because it's just this little window and you you go to this website and you just learn how to code from the first second so you know in a few months you can be you know somewhat proficient at something like javascript or or python and if you are i mean not only are there a ton of jobs you can get if you know how to code, but then you are rather than just being, you know, uh, 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 sort of a passive uh, uh, recipient, you know, of the code that's coming down the pike, you are creating the next reality. You know, if you weren't one of the map makers in the 1200s, here's your next 
best chance is to be one of the code writers of the 21st century. You know, right now, most of the good code writers go to work for Goldman and they're busy programming that future into our reality, you know, and you could just as easily be programming different ones or seeing what they're doing or understanding the way algorithms work. So it it is possible that programming is is the same as uh, being able to read, say, Martin Luther's work or, you know, as it's gone on through history, these new technologies, new revelations helps help some and a few, right? It helps and hurts. I mean, yeah, you know, the the uh i mean you can argue both ways about the the protestant reformation you know that on the one hand it gave people it put bibles in people's hands and they read them in their homes they got literate they read their own bibles they had their own interpretations and they broke away from the church you know they of course it also ended up being super consonant with individualism and and the sort of enlightenment corporate values that led to some of the mess we're in today this sort of the whole illusion of individuality is somehow more important than, um, than, than living as part of a community or participating in a real, you know, in the good old-fashioned burning man medieval <laughs> peer-to-peer way. Right. That kind of died away with this. But now that we have, you know, peer-to-peer technologies, you know, we can bring back some of the best of what came before and combine that with the best of what we got this last four or five hundred years. Um, and we can participate in that mindfully, or we can just become, you know, iOS drones, if you will. You know, people who are just using their iPads and tapping on it with their thumbs and swiping and wiping and living in iTunes and not actually um, having any command over these devices. Right. Even a company like Apple, they're, they now build consumer devices that are, and not only, it's not the device the devices have always been a, you know, an item for, of consumption, but now the device itself causes and enhances consumption for no, for no purpose whatsoever, for no betterment of anything. Well, the one betterment, I mean, as, you know, back where we started, as a writer who used to make a couple of dollars a word and who now can't make that, um, I look at a world with iPads and I go, oh, well, look. People are going to get their hands off the keyboard. People who are using an iPad are much more likely to read a blog than write a blog. They're much more likely to read an article than write one. These are closed worlds where people are going to have to pay for content again because Apple's not going to let them just download something for free. It's going to have to go through some App Store, iTunesy thing. Mm-hmm. So for the guy in me who would rather just suck at the corporate teat and get paid again for what I do, there's something attractive about people not participating anymore. Go back to being the dumb masses and pay me for being what I am. You know, but as an educator, as someone who wants people to be intelligent and participating in society, um, I'm horrified by the fact that people are happy to use Facebook and an iPad and they think they're part of the digital revolution when they're actually just um, they've been returned to the consumer revolution. Yeah, it's you the know? same as sitting at home and just staring at the TV. There, there, there's no difference between Facebook and... On a fundamental and, level, there's not. Yeah. yeah. So spend some time coding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, learning, even if you're never going to be a real coder, learning how code works, learning what it is, um, lets you think critically about 
the environments in which you're spending your time, most people can't think critically about the difference between a laptop and an iPad because they don't really get what's going on. They can't look at various technologies as having different biases, as encouraging different relationships between people and companies and one another. And if they if they can't do that, they can't judge, they can't think critically, they can't make choices for themselves and their families in ways that matter. And I think that's important before, you know, this next migration happens into this, you know, very um, code-driven reality. Oh, that's fantastic. This, yeah, I'm jotting down everything you say. <laughs> As if oh, I'm not recording this. It's on record. <laughs> I'm funny. Oh, boy. That, that, that's fantastic. So you're working with Code Academy now. Are you, You're working there as a... Um, you're not a coder there, right? You're a spokesperson? Um, I'm, a, I'm a, a not a coder, but I actually, I'm using the courses. I mean, I learned to code back in the days when languages don't exist anymore, I mean, like basic, extensive, and Pascal, and things like that. I mean, so they're teaching, you know, JavaScript and Python and all mm-hmm. the the new space age languages. Actually, not space age. Space age, they're using COBOL up in the space lab, I'm sure, but because um, they need stuff that definitely works. That's been but proven, right? I'm sure it's old, old stuff in there. Um, but uh, I should find out. That'd be fun to to know. Yeah, I know the um, processor is an old uh, G3 in the Mars rover. Is it? Yeah. Great, exactly. Yeah. And the space station, I heard it was the 8088 or something. Yeah, so the no, it's not G3, even but built, built to, industri- you know, insane specifications. G3 is a power PC chip, right? Yeah, the Motorola right. S, great. Right. God bless, you and, know? Yeah. And it's getting so, hot whenever it does. So some of this proven technology, you know, it's, it, it has yeah. extreme value. So maybe <laughs> I'm poo-pooing this uh, consumptive device, but... Who knows later on? What do, exactly. I, what do what I know? Yeah. Exactly. Throw an iPhone in a Mars rover. God bless. It's going to work. Yeah. Uh, but, but uh, no, my job is really to help the world um, be more code friendly. So it's, you know, I'm doing talks and interviews and really just trying to help people be less afraid of code to help schools decide that teaching code to elementary school kids is not a stupid thing, but hmm. a smart thing. And to help people understand that code doesn't have to be all nerdly, you know, that just like, you know, learning 22 letters or 26 letters in English to learn the alphabet, you know, seemed hard at the beginning. It's really not that big a deal. You Um, you tell the story of the guy who could read without moving his lips. Yeah. And people were mesmerized by his incredible feats. They were, you know, (laughs) and it's not, and it wasn't turned out not to be that hard. Right. Uh, you know, and now everyone does it, and we teach it. It takes kids a year or two. Mm-hmm. You know, if you had a year or two to learn code, you'd know a lot. But even if you just had a month or two to learn code, you'd know a little. You, you'd, you'd look, you look at it differently once you see kind of how it's put together. Just like if you see that a movie has edits and you learn, oh, they've, they've cut this together. You know, you, you can look at it differently. You can look mm-hmm. at it as something that was put together rather than something that just is. Right, something that occurred like almost a naturally evolution of you know of development rather than just cookie cutter cut out. Right. Super cool, Douglas. This has been just absolutely awesome. Oh, thank I'm you. Had fun. Thank you. Um, 
And of course, the other sponsor of this show is at needhelpparenting.com. You can say goodbye to disrespectful, obnoxious, and abusive behavior and regain control of your child, your family, and your life. This is a parent's program for managing challenging behaviors in children. And if it sounds like I'm reading that, it's because I am. But truth be told, it is an awesome program. I know they advertise like crazy everywhere and on the radio and all over the web. But I must admit, I sought them out um, to become an affiliate on this program. About five years ago, I used this program myself. I believe in it, and I'm personally recommending it. So go to needhelpparenting.com for more info. Thanks for your support.